Matthew chapter 16. For those of you who are visiting for the first time with us, we're going through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, uh, so to speak. Uh, This is message number 89. And we've just gotten to Matthew 16. We're almost finished with Matthew 16, but uh, so we've got a few messages to go yet. But I trust uh, it'll be a blessing as you uh, jump in with us this morning in Matthew chapter 16 and verses 24 through 27. This morning we want to look at the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity. We've been studying together a very important portion of Matthew's Gospel. I think a pivotal point uh, in the story of our Savior's earthly ministry. But let me begin this morning with a question. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? The answers to you might get to that question depend on the person you ask. Some people believe that belonging to a Christian church makes you a Christian. Others would believe that baptism or confirmation is what makes one a Christian. And still others believe that being religious and morally clean is enough to allow one to wear the name Christian. But wait, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is one. Now how can I say that? Well, there are many, many religious groups who claim to be Christians this morning. But according to the Bible, they are not. And so what does it mean then to be a Christian? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at the word Christian first of all. This word literally means the Christ ones or Christ follower. And the name was first given to the followers of Jesus in a place called Antioch in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. History tells us that it was a term of contempt People of Antioch who were pagans were offended by the clean lifestyles and the preaching of the believers and gave them the name Christian. And it was an insult. Instead of insulting these believers, it actually perfectly summed up the image they were attempting to project to their lost neighbors. You see, a Christian is a Christ one or a person who is like Christ. You see, just going to or joining a church cannot make you a Christian. Being a good moral person cannot make you a Christian. Just naming or claiming the name for yourself or your organization does not make you a Christian. In fact, and this may sound a little strange to you this morning, but uh, just being saved cannot make you a Christian. You realize that? Just being saved cannot make you a Christian. You see, to be a Christian means you become like Christ. We lump all saved people under the title Christian, but real Christians are people who live like Jesus Christ. And here in Matthew chapter 16, it's a very important confession that was made about Jesus. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus had just affirmed that confession as authoritative, saying that it was a word of truth given to Peter from a heavenly father himself. And then when we read this shocking piece of news from 
the very same Christ, the Son of the living God, from that time forth, in verse 21, began Jesus to show His disciples how that He must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things to the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Last week we said the cross was a divine necessity. As Jesus Himself said, He must go to the cross. It was the Father's set purpose for Him because it was there that the Son of God would lay down His life on behalf of sinners and He would die for their sins. The disciples struggled to grasp this. Peter even found the idea so repulsive that he dared to pull the Savior aside and rebuke Him for His words. But Jesus made it clear that He would not be turned away from His Father's purpose. He would set himself to mind the things of God and not the things of men. It's in this remarkable context that we come to our passage this morning. Immediately after Jesus had asserted that it was his Father's purpose for him to go to the cross, to lay down his life for his friends, and he himself was absolutely determined to go forward and fulfill his Father's purpose, he then turns to his disciples and he calls to them, as He is now going to call unto you. If He wanted to follow Him, if you want to follow Him, you must need go the way of the cross. Let's look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said unto His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life, shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then, shall, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Perhaps you've had opportunities to visit with an unbeliever at some time in your witnessing, and you've talked to them about the Christian faith. And in the course of your conversation, you might have asked them about what it was that was keeping them from turning their life over to Christ and trusting Him fully as their Savior and Lord. Perhaps they talked about some doubts they had. Or maybe some intellectual questions they had about the Christian faith. And you tried your best to answer them. And at some point, perhaps you got to the bottom line of the matter and you told them plainly that the ultimate reason they didn't want to give their life to Christ was because they knew where following Christ would lead them. And quite frankly, they didn't want to go there. They knew the demands that Christ would make of them and they didn't want to give up the things in life that Christ would require him them to surrender. Now, you may have appreciated their honesty, but you were saddened by their choice. And you continued to pray for them. But one thing is very striking about that is that they recognize something that very few people, even some professing Christians, recognize, and that is that there is a tremendous cost involved in following Jesus. They recognize that Jesus demands nothing less than total commitment from those who choose to follow Him, and what, or that whoever follows Him 
must be prepared to give them everything they are and have. Now this shouldn't come as a surprise. Because Jesus taught this clearly, we read over in the book of Luke. It says, And there were great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost and is not able to finish, or whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all, that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Think about it. Jesus didn't say, unless we forsake all that we have, we would find it hard or difficult to be his disciple. He lays it on the line. Unless we forsake all that we have, we Cannot. Did you notice it there? Three times. He said three times in that passage alone, unless the commitment is total, we cannot be his disciple. Now it seems to me that Jesus often said this to weed out many of his would-be followers. Many began to follow him. But then in the midst of their following, he would turn to them and remind them of what following him would really require of them. And as a result, many of them left him and followed him no further. And they counted the cost and decided they didn't want to pay it. I believe Jesus does the same to us this morning. Even to those of us in this church who already claim to be his followers. We may sincerely believe that we're following Jesus. We believe that we've done so for most of our lives. And suddenly there comes a crisis moment when Jesus turns to us and says that what he says in this morning's passage. And we become face to face in a fresh way with the real cost of following Jesus. Suddenly we have to make a decision. Will we genuinely count the cost and continue to follow him? Or will we stop dead in our tracks, cling to our own lives as the most precious thing to us and decide that, we're not going to follow him any further. Now, I'm not sure, but there may even be several times in our lives in which the Lord finds it necessary to confront us with the cost of following him. Because he loves us so much and he's so jealous for our complete devotion, I suspect that he's willing to do this again and again in our lives. And perhaps sometime in the past you've been confronted with that and you decided you were going to give your all. And then somewhere along the line, you kind of lost your focus and you got off track. And I suspect the Lord's willing to 
remind us of this multiple times in our lives until we fully are weaned from the vain things of this world and truly have he truly has full possession of our lives. In this morning's passage, our Savior once again confronts us with the cost of being His disciple. Jesus reminds us that those who wish to follow Him must follow Him by the way of the cross. And I suggest that we welcome this reminder. I suggest that we remember that it comes from someone who loves us so much that He willingly laid down His life for us and who desires above all else our eternal joy with Him in glory. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to use this reminder to move us to the place of following Jesus where He wants us to be. Let me say, first of all, let's pay particular attention to the commitment of following. The commitment of following. In this passage here, Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he spoke. And his words were clearly meant for a larger audience than just the 12. But he gives an invitation that is wide open to all of humanity. He says, if any man will come after me. If anyone, whoever they may be, genuinely desires to come after Jesus, they're welcome to do so. Jesus himself affirmed when he said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. No one has to worry about whether or not they are one of the elect before they come to Jesus. If you want to come to him, you're welcome. Just come and follow. He invites all of us. He rejects no one who accepts the invitation. But take very careful note of the important word, if. It's at the beginning of this wonderful invitation. It highlights the essential condition of coming after him. If any man will come after me. He says, then let that person fulfill three crucial requirements that Jesus demands of all who would come after him. First of all, Jesus says, we must deny ourselves. Now, Jesus isn't simply talking about some minor act of denying ourselves something that we want, like a bowl of ice cream after supper. That's not what he's talking about. Maybe we need to deny ourselves that bowl of ice cream. That may be true. But he's not talking about that. Nor is he speaking of more extreme forms of self-denial that we see in many religions of the world. Many have denied themselves many things and they thought they were being very spiritual in the process and yet they are actually focusing on themselves the whole time. Jesus isn't merely speaking of denying ourselves something. He's speaking of nothing less than full denial and renunciation of our very selves. And the word deny there is a very strong word. It means to deny utterly, to completely renounce, to disown our natural focus towards self entirely. It's the same word that Jesus used of Peter when he said, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Now Jesus here calls us to do something that is 
antithetical to everything we're told by our culture. Everything in us and around us is geared toward gratifying and glorifying the principle of self. We're told that we really will never love anyone else until we first love ourselves. That's the psychology of the day. We're encouraged to be our own cause. Look out for who? Number one. Who's number one? Me. Even the concept of spirituality in our day has come to refer to the process of fully realizing and actualizing the self. And yet Jesus calls us to do the very opposite that all of society and all of our inner compulsions are telling us to do. Jesus tells us as the first step in his call, dethrone self. We must lay aside our agenda and pursue the pursuit of our rights. You know, that's a big thing these days. I got my rights. Lay them aside. I've got a plan for my life. Lay it aside. And the satisfaction, the accomplishment of our ambitions. You know, people think that's a good thing to have ambition. And to want to get ahead in life. Pursue the American dream. Jesus says, lay it all aside. Deny yourself. Unless we decidedly step out of the driver's seat of our own lives and allow Jesus to sit there in His proper place, we cannot even begin to truly follow Him. Secondly, He says we must take up our cross. Again, sadly, many people and even many Bible teachers have misunderstood what Jesus means by taking up the cross. Many have interpreted this as meaning, well, you're taking up a particular thing in our lives that has a particular burden. We're bearing a burden, and it's the cross we must bear. For some, it may be an illness. Maybe they've been ill for many, many years, and it's just the cross I have to bear. For others, it's a person who's driving us nuts. Oh, that's, you know, my boss, my mother-in-law, a noisy neighbor. That's just a cross I must bear. You know, we've all got our crosses to bear. You get the idea? Well, the fact is, we wouldn't have such crosses to bear in the first place if what Jesus demands of us is true, that we utterly and completely deny self. See, our boss wouldn't be a bothersome to us if we were denying self. Because the reason why he bothers us is because we're thinking about me, me. He's not being fair to me. It pretty much takes care of everything else that might burden us. Even a sickness. But that isn't what Jesus is talking about anyway. What Jesus is speaking is something that everyone who lived in that day and under the rule of the cruel Roman Empire would have probably seen more than once in their life. That is, a condemned criminal 
being forced as an act of public humiliation to carry the instrument of his own death up the street and place it down so he could be executed on it. That's something we don't know much about, do we? Oh, we talk about the cross of Jesus. And we, we talk about that. And we say, well, that's, that was amazing that Jesus would go to the cross. But how many of us have even seen that type of thing happen in our society? None. To take up the cross means practical action to, in the idea of denying the self. It means to embrace complete readiness at all times, in all situations, to consider that we have no rights then no more rights than a condemned man would have on his way to his execution. It would mean that we deny ourselves even to the point of death, just as Jesus did. You want to be Christ-like? You've got to be willing to take a cross and carry it to your place of your death. It would mean that we consider, as Paul had said, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. It would mean that we testify as Paul was able to testify of himself. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must deny self. We must take up our cross. And finally, we must follow Him. This means that we must imitate Him. We must go where He goes. We must act as He acts. We must walk as He walked. It means that we must obey His commands and keep faithful to His instructions. It means that we must be set apart, as we spoke of in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Set apart, separated from the world unto God. When I think of this, I often have the picture in my mind of Jesus walking along a path with me walking maybe alongside of him, behind him. And sometimes, as I've followed behind him, I, I might get distracted. You ever get distracted in your life? You start looking around at the scenery, thinking about your own concerns, about your own wishes. And then when you finally look up and I find We've come to a fork in the road. I'm on one path and the Lord's on another path. That is what I believe it means in a practical sense. At such times I look down the path and I'm, I'm on and I see that the way is smooth and comfortable, the flower gardens and shady trees along the way. And when I look ahead and see the path that Jesus is on, I see the road is a hard one. The way He has chosen is rough and narrow. I can't see what's ahead. And then I see Jesus stopping and waiting for me on the other path, calling out to me and saying, Come on, Daryl. I'm on this path. Get over here. Follow me. And then I must make a decision. Am I going to leave this nice, smooth, beautiful path, or am I going to go the rough and narrow one that the Lord's on? If I may, I believe that there's a definite order of events involved in the things that Jesus says. We cannot follow Him unless we've taken up our cross, the instrument of our own death, and we cannot take up that dreadful cross unless we have absolutely and completely denied self. 
Unless we have denied ourselves and taken up the cross, we will only be kidding ourselves to thinking that we are following Jesus. So you see, Jesus doesn't demand much of his followers, does he? No, he demands all. The level of commitment he demands is total. It's good to know this before we begin to follow it, isn't it? Jesus goes on to explain the implications of what he's just said. This leads us to, secondly, the requirement of commitment. The requirement of commitment. First, we see the level of commitment Jesus asks us, and it requires, first of all, that we relinquish our hold on our life. Verse 25, For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. I remember reading about how they used to catch wild monkeys for the zoo. See, the animal catcher would put a banana or a peanut inside of a jar and he'd leave it out in the open and then he would hide in the bushes and wait and eventually the monkey would sneak up, reach his paw into the bottle and grab the banana and then the animal catcher would stroll out for the bush to get the monkey because of its greedy little paw around that banana It would make a fist, and it was too big to pass through the neck of that heavy bottle or jar, and the animal catcher would easily pick up the monkey, jar and all, haul it to a cage, and the monkey couldn't get away, because no matter what, he was too greedy to let go of the banana. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is telling us that life is not something we can save by holding on to it. If we want to come after him, then we can't cling to life during this short stay on this earth. As if it were the only thing that there really is. As if it were true happiness and fulfillment uh, to be found. If we refuse to let go of our hold on this short temporal life and say no to Jesus, uh, to Jesus' call to deny self, take up the cross and follow Him, then we will prove to have made a very foolish decision. The life that we think we have saved will prove to be only a momentary vapor. In the process, we've lost the real, vital principle of life that we are meant by our Creator to experience in the eternal relationship with Himself. Now, by contrast, if we let go of this this temporal life for Christ's sake, if we lose it for His sake, then our life will be kept in His safekeeping and will eventually be ours for all of eternity. As the Apostle John tells us, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Secondly, there must be a level of commitment that Jesus asks, requires us that we value, value our souls above this world. Verse 26. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus here speaks of an immeasurable value of the soul. The people of this world value someone in terms of what he is or she is externally. That is, in the terms of income or possessions or reputation or how they look. And the attitude of this world is that more someone, the more someone has, the more someone is. Yet Jesus says that for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth, 
Jesus told the parable of the certain rich man that illustrates this. Told of how this rich man had no room to store his crops, and so he tore down his barns and he built bigger ones. His philosophy was that he had uh, saved up all uh, to take care of himself for many years, and so he could just eat, drink, and be merry. And then over in Luke chapter 12 and verse 20 and 21, it says, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose name, or then whose uh, things be, uh, then shall those things be, whose things shall those be, which thou hast provided. So he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, the rich man in this parable sought to protect and preserve life only during his short time on this earth. It seems like we're pretty well uh, interested in that as well. We're very concerned about how much we have, how much we're saving, what kind of insurance we have, how's our health. We're pretty much concerned about that, aren't we? Yet the rich man sought to protect and preserve life He advanced his earthly life. It was his only agenda. He sought to save what, as it turns out, he could never keep. He built his empire on that which was scheduled for demolition. In the process, he lost that which was infinitely greater value, his own soul. And what then will a man give in exchange for his own soul? How tragic then to lose our souls in the pursuit of that which is not going to last. How horrible to stand in the judgment and see that you've gained the perishing world and lost everything of eternal life value in process. How much better to lose the whole world and follow Jesus instead. And finally, we see the level of commitment Jesus asks us requires that we invest ourselves totally in his return. Verse 27 says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. The Apostle Paul lived his life on this earth in confident expectation of the day of Christ's return. He was even willing to lay down his life for Christ because of his hope in that day. And just before he was executed for his Savior, it says, Paul wrote, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept, my fa- uh, kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And then what's more, he encouraged his fellow believers who had put all their hopes in that day. He said in Colossians 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. If you truly have your hope in the day of Christ's return, and in your resurrection to the glory of His presence, then you'll be willing to invest yourself fully in following Him today, no matter what the cost. You will count it your greatest joy to stand before Him on that day and hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
You see, Jesus is telling us that because that day is certain, following Him with total commitment is the wisest investment anyone could ever make. And as I conclude this morning, I want to ask three questions. Three questions. First of all, why are you here today? I'm glad you're here. But why are you here? By the way, are you here because of expectations? Or out of duty? Or habit? To see or be seen? Are you here for the love of the church? Are you here for the love of the Lord? We desire to worship Him. By the way, you will always get what you come for. Whatever the reason is, you're here this morning. You're going to get it. I'm not a threatening you or anything like that. <laughs> but see, to love the Lord and desire to worship Him is the only valid reason to attend church. You'll always benefit from, his, from coming. But we all need to reach the place where He is the sole reason why we come. And then, why does this church exist? You know, churches exist for a lot of reasons. Too often they exist only because someone started it a long time ago, and the reason why, uh, the reason why has been long forgotten. And I submit to you that there are only three valid reasons for this or any church to exist If these are not true about us, then we do not deserve the name church, and we certainly do not qualify for the name Christian. What are those three reasons? To exalt Christ, or the Savior, to edify the saints, to evangelize the sinners. When the call, come after me, is issued by Jesus, it registers differently depending upon the condition of the heart that hears it. To a lost person, when, it's, when Jesus says, come unto me or come after me, to a lost person that means be saved. Because Jesus will give you a new heart. To a saved person it means be sold out. Be totally committed because Jesus can refocus your heart. So why are you here today? Why does this church exist? And number three, why do you call yourself a Christian? Is it because you are a genuine Christ follower? Our text this morning has told us, as a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ is one who has been, first of all, called to lay something down. Deny yourself. A disciple is to utterly disown himself. He is to count the old man as being dead. He's to make no provision for the flesh. He's to follow the example of Jesus. He's to live so as to be alive to God and dead to sin. Does that sound hard? It should, because it is hard. Self does not like to be denied. But unless we do it, we cannot possibly follow the the Lord. We must deny self. 
we're called to lay something down. Secondly, we're called to lift something up. Take up your cross. And to understand what this cross Jesus refers to is we need to talk about what it isn't. Again, it's not your mother-in-law, it's not your husband, it's not your wife, it's not your wayward children, it's your cross isn't your difficulties, it's not a bad situation you face in life. The cross is not a place of suffering, it's a place of death. Death to self. To take up one's cross means to willingly pick it up and carry the shame. It was not a great proud day to go out and bear your cross. It was, a, it was a symbol of shame. It's a symbol of death. Death to self. And then thirdly, we're called to live something out. Follow Him. We're called upon to take up that cross once for all and go after Jesus. We're not to back out. We're not to turn around. We're not to lay down the cross. We're to die on that cross, giving our all for His glory. This phrase has been the idea of being willing to go all the way for Jesus. No holes barred and no turning back. Just a steady, humble walk that follows His footsteps and His path through the world. Jesus said it very simply as He could possibly say it. John 12, 26 says, If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. And if any man serve me, him will my Father honor. You see, it costs us everything to follow Jesus. I hasten to add that it's a price that we can safely pay. It demands everything from us, but He never takes us without also promising us to, to, to give us infinitely more than He takes in return. He makes a promise to us, a promise that He intends for us to genuinely believe in and to trust Him fully to keep. It's found over in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 29. And every one that hath forsaken houses and brethren and sisters and father and mother or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. When God makes a promise, He keeps it. That's a promise. And I trust we'll respond to Jesus' invitation then by asking the Spirit of God to reveal to us what might be standing in the way of our truly knowing and following Him. Let's allow the Spirit to remove the things from us that keep us from a wholehearted devotion to Christ. Let's allow Him to teach us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. Heads bowed, eyes closed as we...